Chapter 9. Detective Work and Word Tricks. It might tend to promote moderation and, in the end, agreement if we were industrious on all occasions to represent our own doctrine of the Trinity as wholly unintelligible. That was from Dr. John Hay, lecturing on the Trinity at Cambridge. Another quotation. In the first place, it should be noted that John is as undeviating a witness as any in the New Testament to the fundamental tenet of Judaism of unitary monotheism. Compare Romans 3 verse 30 and James 2.19. There is one true and only God. John 5.44, John 17.3. Everything else is idols. 1 John 5.21. In fact, nowhere is the Jewishness of John, which has emerged in all recent study, more clear. That's from J.A.T. Robinson, The Fourth Gospel and the Church's Doctrine of the Trinity, in his 12 more New Testament studies. The Bible should be thought of, in some sense, as a crime scene, unknown to much of the church-going public, who generally do not read the documents in their original Hebrew and Greek, a powerful and unfair bias is at work in some translations. We provided an example in our discussion of the word worship in chapter 5. Translation can be the subtlest form of interpretation. The text has sometimes been made to say what, according to orthodox views of God and Jesus and salvation, it ought to say in the light of later theology. There's been an unconscious attempt by those holding the majority opinion to buttress the text of Scripture with supports for, quote, correct doctrines. But there has been also a steady barrage of challenges from opponents that, in fact, quote, orthodoxy may not be quite what it claims. The objections raised against the majority opinions have a long history. Complaint that the New Testament is misrepresented in church is nothing new. Desmond Ford, in his extensive inquiry into Jesus' Olivet Discourse, noted that, quote, F.W. Farrar has written at length to prove that the history of exegesis is a history of error. And if black and white really mean different things, then the statistics are in favor of the one-time Dean of Canterbury. That's from Desmond Ford's The Abomination of Desolation in Biblical Eschatology. The sophistication of modern Bible study and the flood of easily obtainable information via internet help inquirers discover the clear tendency for the, quote, orthodox to make the Bible, wherever possible, conform to post-biblical theology. For a penetrating account of how the Greek manuscripts were manipulated in some verses to suit the needs of later orthodoxy, we recommend Bart Ehrman's book, The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture. Rather than admit that the faith from the second century on took a turn for the worse, as philosophically trained Greeks 
became, in some sense, Christian, bringing with them their philosophical presuppositions, the so-called orthodox insist on tracing the correct views through a continuous line back to the Bible itself. A little detective work will reveal some startling facts about what has been going on. John's Gospel has been used to force the rest of the Bible against the grain of the scripture taken as a whole into the later theology of the church councils. John 8.58, where Jesus states that, quote, I am he, the Messiah, before Abraham came to be, or as it reads equally well in the Greek, before Abraham comes to be. If so translated, the Greek is ambiguous, Jesus makes the claim to be prior to Abraham in the resurrection. If Jesus means before Abraham's birth, he is the Messiah, this would be very similar to the text in Revelation 13 verse 8, that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world, that is, in God's foreordained purpose. See, for example, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Jesus is indeed prior to Abraham in the resurrection. Job expected to come into existence again in the resurrection. See Job 14, verse 14. If a man dies, will he live again? I will wait until I begin to exist again. Palin Yenome in the Septuagint. John 8.58, for example, has been used to promote the idea, absent from the rest of the New Testament, that Jesus is equal in every sense with God and pre-existed as, quote, the eternal God the Son. A heavy concentration on John is then supported by a few verses in Paul. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are not treated as primary data for finding out about God and Jesus. John is twisted, and a distorted version of John is then read back into the rest of the Bible. John has been made the main support for the later theology of God as more than one person, and Jesus as not originally human. What gets forgotten in all the quotations from John is that, quote, John is as undeviating a witness as any in the New Testament to the fundamental tenet of Judaism of unitary monotheism. John 5, verse 44, and John 17, verse 3. J.T. Robinson said exactly that in his article, The Fourth Gospel and the Church's Doctrine of the Trinity, in 12 more New Testament studies. These texts in John ought to have provided a solid barrier against any watering down, modification, or so-called expansion of Jesus' own creedal statements. Unfortunately, John's and Jesus' unitary monotheism has been swamped by texts marshaled from the same John and used against him to contradict him and Jesus, and to contradict the lucidly straightforward and detailed account of Jesus, the Son of God's origin, 
and thus who he really is. The accumulative effect of language about God. It's an uphill struggle indeed to find in Scripture the doctrine that both Jesus is God and the Father is God, when God is thousands and thousands of times defined by singular personal pronouns. I, you, singular, me, he, and him. Single personal pronouns, if one is following the historical grammatical method of interpretation claimed by evangelicals, or indeed if one is using normal common sense, singular personal pronouns denote a distinct personal self for God. God is so described constantly, Jesus is equally I as a separate and distinct personality. The idea that the Father and the Son are the same person, held by oneness Pentecostals, would equally overthrow the use of singular pronouns for the Father and the Son, who speak to each other as I and you, and who are collectively known as we and us. The oneness Pentecostal position is expressed like this, quote, if there's only one God, and that God is the Father, Malachi 2.10, and if Jesus is God, then logically it follows that Jesus is the Father, a quotation from David Bernard, The Oneness of God, cited by Gregory Boyd in his book Oneness, Pentecostals and the Trinity. The so-called logic fails because Jesus is never said to be the one and only God, or the true God. And it really ought to be obvious that a father and a son are not the same person. The power of denominational dogma to befuddle its adherents at the most elementary level is truly amazing. Jesus is equally, quote, I, as a separate and distinct personality, as are all sons in relation to their fathers. Jesus speaks of his Father and himself together as, quote, we and us. John 14, 23 and John 17, verse 21. His Father is an additional individual witness to what he, Jesus, says. You'll find that in John 8, verses 17 to 18. The emphatic assertions of God in the Bible that he is one single person, claiming the unique position of deity, constantly rule out all contrary views which might make him more than one. Quote, I am the Lord, and there is no other, there is no God besides me. That's in Isaiah 45, verse 5. You alone are God. Isaiah 37, verse 16 and Psalm 86, verse 10. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Isaiah 45, verse 6. I, the Lord, besides whom there is no other God, there is no just and saving God but me. Isaiah 45, verse 21. You are the only true God, as Jesus said in John 17, 3. The Bible exhausts language in its effort to inform the reader that there is one single God 
and that he is a single divine individual. No one has any difficulty identifying Elijah as a single human person. Quote, I, even I only, am left. Elijah said in 1 Kings 19 verse 14, precisely the same language presents God as a single individual. But the simplicity of the Bible's Unitarian theology has become a nightmare of complexity under the pressure of later Greek philosophically driven theology. Not one of the 12,000 appearances of the words for God in the Bible can be shown to mean a triune God or a tripersonal God. The Trinity as, quote, God is never so named in the Bible. Neither the word Trinity nor the slightest hint that God is three equal eternal persons appears in any of Scripture's 31,000 verses. Father, Son, and their Holy Spirit are mentioned together frequently in the New Testament. Only indoctrination from later times compels readers to leap to the assumption that all, quote, three compose the one God. Paul, when he makes creedal statements, associates God and Jesus in a relationship of God and man. Quote, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Messiah Jesus. That's in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. The Lord Messiah is still a human person as distinct from the one God, his Father. The obvious fact that New Testament writers mean the Father when they say God over 1,300 times has forced some commentators into the strange position of claiming that, quote, Father sometimes refers to the whole Trinity. Each of the more than 1,300 references to God, Theos, as Father, is a testimony to the Unitarian Creed of Scripture. This has been a problem for commentators who expect to find the theology of church councils in Scripture. Forcing the Trinity on the Biblical text. Thus Stuart Olliot, in his book The Three Are One, cites Paul's Unitarian statement, but to us there is but one God the Father, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. He then comments, here the word Father equals the word one God. Paul is saying that there is but one God and is not thinking of the persons of the Godhead at all. The title Father is used of God, but not of a distinct person in the Godhead. That's from Stuart Eliot's book, The Three Are One. His desire to justify his Trinitarianism in Scripture forces him to read the word Father as not one of the persons, but as the whole triune Godhead. Apparently, the constant equation in the New Testament of God with the Father does not convince him of the Bible's unitary monotheism. The pressure of loyalty to, quote, the system makes objectivity impossible. With the enormous evidence for Jewish-Christian monotheism against them, Trinitarians have been driven to assemble whatever, quote, proof texts 
they can find to support them. Sometimes they are assisted by texts which have been manipulated in the original Greek in favor of the Trinity. The history of the transmission of the Greek manuscripts from early centuries to our present time is most revealing. It shows some blatant cases of fiddling the Greek text to insert the idea that God is three and that the Son of God is actually God. The King James Version of the Bible contains a passage in 1 John 5 verse 7 which is now universally recognized as a forgery. It was added to the manuscripts as a Trinitarian proof text and was included almost as an accident in the authorized version of 1611. The notes in any modern study Bible will provide the reader with the necessary information about its absence from the original. Bruce Metzger concluded, Quote, that these words are spurious and have no right to stand in the New Testament is certain. That's from Bruce Metzger, a textual commentary on the Greek New Testament. Another example of a text which was altered is 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. This verse reads in the King James Version, quote, God was manifested in the flesh. Modern versions have corrected the word God to, quote, he who. The alteration of an original he who, in Greek os, was very sneakily accomplished when some scribes changed the omicron, o, into a theta, giving the word theta sigma, standing for God. The reading theos, was an abbreviated form of the Greek word Theos, God. All that had to be done was to draw a little line across the middle of the Omicron to produce the Greek letter Theta. Then the text was made to sound Trinitarian and to support the Incarnation. Quote, God was manifested in the flesh. He who, us, was made to read God, Theos. 1 John 5, verse 20, quote, And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. This verse is held by some commentators to be an indication that Jesus is God. Since this would overthrow the Unitarian creed of Jesus, many other commentators, both evangelicals and liberals, recognize the reference to, quote, the true God as a title for the Father of Jesus. The verse is then an echo of John 17, verse 3, where Jesus carefully distinguishes the only true God, the Father, from himself, the Messiah. In 1 John 5, 20, we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. It is the Father who is this one true God, as Jesus had said in John 17, 3. The pronoun this in John's epistle does not always refer to the nearest noun. For example, see 1 John 2, 22 and 2 John 7. 
see the strong confirmation of our point of view, candidly admitted by Trinitarian expositor Henry Alford in his commentary on the Greek Testament. See also his good analysis of the corruption in 1 Timothy 3.16. We are in union with the one God, the Father, by being in harmony with his unique and human Son. An attempt was made by copyists to obscure the begetting, which means coming into existence, of the Son of God in 1 John 5.18. John speaks of Jesus as, quote, the one who was begotten, using the aorist tense of the verb, which indicates a point of time in the past. The begetting of the Son would be an obvious contradiction of the Trinitarian concept that the Son has always existed. Some Greek manuscripts reflect an attempt to evade the origin of the Son as begotten in time. They change the him in the sentence, the one begotten from God keeps him, changing the word to himself, thus avoiding the reference to Jesus as the one begotten and who now preserves the Christian. The text was manipulated to give the odd sense that the Christian preserves himself. Again, Metzger prefers the more obvious reading, quote, the committee understood the one begotten to refer to Christ. That's from Metzger's A Textual Commentary on the Greek New Testament. This verse is particularly important since it shows John to be in perfect agreement with Luke and Matthew, who likewise speak of the begetting of the Son in history in the womb of his mother. Luke 1 verse 35 Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, 18 and 20. John knew the synoptic gospels and very probably referred to the virgin birth in John 1, 13, where there is very ancient and widespread evidence that the verb begotten should be singular as a reference to Jesus, who was not begotten of, quote, bloods, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of a man. The Jerusalem Bible of 1968 chooses this version of John 1, verses 12 to 13. Quote, But to all who did accept Jesus, he gave power to become the children of God to all who believe in the name of him who was not born out of human stock or urge of the flesh or the will of man, but of God himself. Jesus was, of course, born from Mary, and so in this sense was very much of human stock, being the direct descendant of David. He was not, however, born of bloods, as the Greek reads, the mixing of the blood of two human parents. He was not born of the will of man or urge of the flesh, but directly by God's intervention. Tertullian accused the Gnostics of having altered the Greek text to avoid a reference to the virgin birth in John 1.13, and this may well be so. Even if the verb is taken as plural, who were born, referring to Christian rebirth, there's a parallel between our rebirth 
and the miraculous begetting of Jesus the Son. There are one or two further verses where Trinitarians think they have found references to Jesus as God. The 1317 references to the Father of Jesus as, quote, God, seem not to persuade them that the Father alone is God. In the very few verses alleged to be references to Jesus as, quote, God, there's a grammatical ambiguity which makes a decision about who is being called God quite uncertain. An occasional use of the word God for Jesus in a secondary sense would anyway not overthrow the massive and consistent biblical use of God for the Father alone. Certainly the creed should be established on the overwhelming and unambiguous evidence for God as a single person across the whole range of Scripture. To base creeds on grammatically ambiguous texts is very unwise. We may say with certainty that Jesus is called, quote, God twice in Hebrews 1 verse 8 and John 20 verse 28. The few other passages cannot be produced as firm evidence. Titus 2.13 is an example of a text often advanced by evangelicals as clear when in fact translations differ in a striking way. The translation of the King James Version may well be correct. Christians are, quote, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus is not called God here. As Nigel Turner remarked, Sometimes the definite article is not repeated even when there is clearly a separation of idea. That's from grammatical insights into the New Testament. Note the typo in the text. The word not was omitted in the edition of 1965. Famous Trinitarian commentator Henry Alford also does not think that Jesus is called God in that verse. In this verse, in Titus 2.13, Jesus is not called God. God and Jesus are clearly separated, and there was no need for the definite article to be repeated to ensure that separation. There's certainly no trinity in Isaiah chapter 48, verses 14 to 16. Note the punctuation of the Revised Standard Version. I quote, Assemble all of you and hear. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, the Lord God, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, that is the Messiah, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Note carefully that the RSV closes the quotation marks after I have been there. A new speaker then says, quote, And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. The Messiah, or perhaps the prophet, is here represented as being sent by the Lord God. 
the vast majority of Trinitarian scholars would never advance this passage as any evidence for the Trinity. It's incredible that our understanding of who God is should be based on a grammatical quibble. Beget means beget. Evidence for the extraordinary lengths Trinitarians have gone to to justify a post-biblical creed is seen when the word beget is deprived of its actual meaning and given a new so-called theological meaning not recognized by any lexicon. In genealogies, it is possible for beget occasionally to be the equivalent of to become the father of, in a legal rather than biological sense. Matthew 1.12 speaks of Shealtiel as begetting Zerubbabel. In fact, Shealtiel was his uncle. Zerubbabel was considered his son legally. But beget used of Jesus does not appear in that sense, of course. And one who is begotten is by definition not as old as the one who begets him. This expedient shows how persistently tradition tries to overwhelm and suppress the sense of simple biblical terminology with the word beget. Psalm 2 verse 7 declares that God has begotten his son. You are my son, today I have begotten you. It's a divine oracle pointing us to the subsequent appearance of his unique son, the Messiah. Since to beget means to bring into existence, to originate, the word retains its meaning as originate, produce, whether used literally of persons being begotten or in a metaphorical way, such as a prophet producing children as disciples. This is a divine oracle in Psalm 2.7, pointing us to the subsequent appearance of his unique son, the Messiah. Since to beget means to bring into existence, to originate, how is this to be reconciled with the dogmatic view that the son has no beginning and is eternal? The problem was acute since in this text not only is the son begotten, he is begotten today. This verse was applied to Jesus' birth in Acts 13.33. God raised up Jesus, not raised up again, as mistranslated in the King James Version. The error was corrected by the Revised Version of 1881. The King James Version prevents us from seeing that the begetting of Jesus as son was at his birth as Luke 1.35 and Matthew 1.18-20 say. F.F. F. Bruce emphasizes the fact that the raising up of verse 33 refers not to the resurrection of Jesus, but to his origin at birth. That's from Bruce's commentary on the Greek text of the Acts of the Apostles. So this text in Acts 13.33 pointed to the raising up of Jesus and Acts 13.34, by contrast, refers to the resurrection of Jesus. See also Hebrews 1 verse 5, Hebrews 5 verse 5, and 1 John 5.18, not the King James Version.
The architects of the Trinity showed extraordinary ingenuity as they worked their way around the so-called problem. It was argued that when God begets, it must be an event outside time, since God is eternal. Furthermore, with God, all time is the same. So when he says, quote, today, he must mean, quote, the eternal day, which has no beginning nor end. But this is to engage in the demolition of words and communication. Oliot, whom we cited earlier, writes, quote, the son owes his generation to the father, and then, destroying the word generate, states, quote, this relationship of the son to the father did not have a beginning. That's from Stuart Eliot's book, The Three Are One. The point we are making in this book revolves around how many uncreated eternal persons there are in the universe. Since the post-biblical church decided on three persons in the Godhead, the origin of the person of Jesus was an embarrassment. The Son, after all, was begotten. The word beget had a perfectly easy meaning to originate, to procreate, to cause to come into existence. Moreover, the Son was clearly begotten in time and on a specific day. Quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2 verse 7. Christianity is firstly a religion rooted in history. The Jesus story is both God's and ours, and it is set within time. Its major events occur on specific days and at specified times. In Old Testament scripture, the Son was promised for a time in the future, meaning, of course, that he was not yet in existence. The coming of the Son as a descendant of David was guaranteed in God's program and according to his own timing. But this is untrue of the very philosophically oriented doctrine of God and of the Son inherited from the Church Councils. The critically important biblical statements about how and when God begat, that is, brought into existence his own Son, cannot be reconciled with a Son of God who had no beginning. But without such an eternal, quote, beginningless Son, there can be no trinity as handed down from Nicaea. What was to be done? Church speak, so-called, came to the rescue, and the offensive words were given new definitions unknown to dictionaries or lexicons. The words of the Bible relevant to the origin of the Son were simply emptied of their actual significance. The task of explaining the novel meanings for biblical words and giving them a theological spin was assigned to the learned clergy. They became guardians of these esoteric, non-normal meanings. The ordinary public, 
understanding words in their dictionary sense, was thought to be incompetent to judge the, quote, higher sense conferred on these words by the educated ecclesiastical leaders. And the results of this obfuscation of plain words remain with us to this day. Sometimes inquiring church members are urged not to trouble their heads with, quote, theological issues best left to the experts. In contradiction to their claim that in the case of the Son of God, beget cannot mean beget, the same scholars inconsistently continued to say that they believed in the grammatical method of interpretation by which words are to be given their normal lexical meaning. But what lexicon or dictionary will support the claim that the word beget does not mean to cause, to exist, to produce, or that today means in a timeless eternity? The evidence for this sabotaging of the Bible in the name of Christianity is available for all to inspect. The point is exposed clearly in Professor Donald MacLeod's work on the person of Christ. In his section on eternal generation, he tells us that this idea, quote, figures prominently in the statements of the Nicene Fathers and their successors. Then this amazing admission, he says, but it is far from clear what content, if any, we can impart to the concept of beget. Likewise, Leonard Hodgson, lecturing on the Trinity, noted that Augustine's repeated assertion that in God each attribute is all the others, I find quite unintelligible. That's from Leonard Hodgson's The Doctrine of the Trinity. MacLeod feels the need to cover his uncertainty. Eternal generation, he says, and I quote, is revealed, but it's revealed as a mystery, and the writings of the fathers abound with protestations of inevitable ignorance on the matter. Athanasius, for example, writes, quote, nor again is it right to seek how God begets, and what is the manner of his begetting, for a man must be beside himself to venture on such points. Such a thing, ineffable and proper to God's nature, and known to him alone and the Son, this he demands to be explained in words. It's better in perplexity to be silent and believe than to disbelieve on account of perplexity. That's from MacLeod's book, The Person of Christ. This is a sort of, quote, no-go warning, a hands-off admonition. Don't look too carefully at the word beget. It has a special non-meaning when applied to the mysterious workings of the deity and the trinity. Such was the impression conveyed to the laity. While the trinity was required as a necessary belief of salvation, its meaning could not and should not be probed in detail since it was declared to be 
a, quote, mystery. It required unrecognizable meanings for key words. According to one popular source, it can be apprehended but not comprehended. Some modern examinations of the Trinity are refreshingly candid. One has to read them carefully to see how, in fact, they really undermine the tradition they hope to support. Millard Erickson almost gives up the unequal struggle over the impossible notion of, quote, eternal begetting when he concedes, quotation, the begetting passages in the New Testament should be seen as referring to the earthly residence of Jesus rather than some continuous generation by the Father. That's from the book Making Sense of the Trinity by Millard Erickson. But without the doctrine of the eternal begetting of the Son, the Trinity collapses. Strong protest must be raised on the basis of Scripture and the grammatical historical method by which it is to be read. Athanasius and Gregory Nazianzen's argument for, quote, eternal generation is founded on a completely unknown sense of a well-defined Greek word. MacLeod ventures to explain the Church Father's point of view with this astonishing sentence. He says that for the architects of the dogma about the Son, quote, to beget does not mean to originate. I suggest that all the confusion over who God and Jesus are is derived from that amazing proposition. A, quote, Humpty Dumpty approach to words has taken over and deprived us of access to precious truth. It was Humpty Dumpty who declared that words mean exactly what he chooses them to mean. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. That's from Lewis Carroll's book, Through the Looking Glass. In any dictionary of Greek or English, one finds immediately that to originate means to generate, and to generate is to beget, to bring into existence. But the meaning of the word beget had to be disposed of, lest the origin of the Son of God became clear. A later Catholic spokesman for the Church, John of Damascus, spoke of the everlasting God who, quotes, generates without beginning that God whose nature and existence are above time may not engender in time. That's cited by MacLeod in his book, Person of Christ. But this is to tell God what he may not do. On this argument, the Son simply is without any hint of becoming. In the words of Church Father Gregory Nazianzen, the Son is, quote, unoriginatedly begotten. The Son, then, in view of the actual meaning of these words, has what Gregory of Nazianzen called a beginningless beginning. No wonder, as MacLeod comments, quote, that question about generation drove Gregory of Nazianzen 
almost to apoplexy. The truth is we are lost. We know that the Son is distinguished by the fact that he is begotten, but we do not know what begotten is. Quoted again from McLeod's book, The Person of Christ. But we do. Matthew and Luke explained it very adequately. And we can find our way again when we abandon the maze of confusing terminology. Some Trinitarian Church Fathers were nervous about the introduction of the word homoousios of the same essence. They recognized the dangers of importing unbiblical terminology. This unbiblical terminology swamped the plain use of beget in Scripture. Once we acknowledge the revealed words of Scripture and cease trying to get rid of them, all will be clear. Luke and Matthew take the greatest trouble to tell us in detail about the begetting of the Son. The Son is linked step by step by a 42-stage process of generation or lineal descent from Abraham through David. See Matthew 1 verse 17. Matthew tells us that he is giving us the facts about the genesis of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1 verse 1. The central hero of the Christian faith is introduced by the opening verse of the New Testament as, quote, Jesus Christ, son of David and Abraham. 1 John 5.18 speaks of Jesus as, quote, the one who was begotten. The aorist indicates a point of time in the past, and there's not a hint that John was perplexed about the meaning of the word beget. It means that the Son was brought into existence, not transferred from one form of existence to another. The Son is, according to John, the uniquely begotten Son. His origin is one of a kind. It was a begetting or procreation derived directly from the Father's intervention. The whole problem can be reduced to this. According to the Church Fathers, generation cannot mean origination. McLeod admits the obvious that, quote, in human generation, of course, it does mean origination, but in divine generation, it does not. That's from McLeod's book, The Person of Christ. But what is this arbitrary disallowing of plain language? Is God not able to work in his own creation and by biological miracle procreate, beget, engender through his spirit, the second Adam, the head of the new creation, the Son of God. Did not Paul speak of Adam as the, quote, type of the one who is to come? Romans 5.14. The whole concept of eternal generation, beginningless beginning, is a mythical construct, unwarranted by the text of the Bible, or by any lexical definition of words. It involves hijacking the proper meaning of words. Language has been bludgeoned to death. The results suffered by church members and their leaders have been chaotic and confusing. Dr. John MacArthur, 
An unfortunate retreat into misunderstanding of the word beget occurred when commentator and evangelist John MacArthur decided to adopt a view of generation which in earlier years he had seen as impossible. MacArthur had agreed with a number of prominent Protestants that, quote, beget means to bring into existence, and that, quote, eternal begetting was a simple contradiction. In his commentary on Hebrews, written in 1983, MacArthur had supported the view that there was no Son of God until the birth of Jesus. He wrote that the word today, in Hebrews 1.5, shows that his sonship began in a point of time, not in eternity. His life as son began in this world. That's from MacArthur's New Testament commentary on Hebrews. Abandoning his earlier realistic view of the meaning of words, MacArthur later wrote, quote, It is now my conviction that the begetting spoken of in Psalm 2 and Hebrews 1 is not an event that takes place in time. Christ had no beginning, but is as timeless as God himself. Therefore, the, quote, begetting mentioned in Psalm 2 and its cross-references has nothing to do with his origin. That's from MacArthur's essay, Re-examining the Eternal Sonship of Christ. The word beget has been conveniently dissolved here into nothing under the pressure of orthodoxy. Beget is one of those fixed terms which point to the beginning of existence. The Bible was tragically overwhelmed by philosophy and the grammatical method had to be abandoned. The human Jesus was obscured. Amazing attempts to avoid a begetting of the Son in time. This issue of, quote, eternal generation drove some evangelicals to extraordinary lengths. George Zeller and Renald Showers in The Eternal Sonship of Christ, a timely defense of this vital biblical doctrine, admit that the word beget is used a great number of times in the Old Testament. Quote, both in the simple, the kal tense of the Hebrew verb, and in the causative, hifil conjugations, in the ordinary sense of to generate or to beget, just as anyone familiar with the content of the Old Testament would expect. It appears 28 times in the fifth chapter of Genesis alone, in this ordinary sense. At this point in their discussion, a remarkable example of, quote, unfair play occurs. The authors would prefer that the causative form of the verb appear in the text of Psalm 2.7. This day I have begotten you. It would be easier, in other words, for them to dispense with its obvious meaning by claiming that in the causative form it might just mean to declare sonship rather than to bring it into existence. 
The problem for these Trinitarian authors was that allowing for a beginning of sonship would destroy at a stroke the doctrine of the eternal Son and thus the Trinity. If we could simply render the text in Psalm 2.7, I have declared your sonship, this would remove from the verb, of course, any necessary reference to beginnings. They then make a curious technical blunder. They say that one could change the verb from the simple to the causative form without changing any of the Hebrew consonants, just altering the vowels. The facts are, however, wrong. The causative form of the verb would indeed require a consonantal alteration, not only just a change of vowels. In either case, the sacred text would have to be tampered with. Undaunted, the authors, after much struggle, conclude that, quote, begotten, in the case of Jesus, means that he is the ungenerated co-equal son of the Father. To generate, in other words, does not mean, they say, to generate. It means not to generate. What is most remarkable about this attempt to get rid of unwanted information is that even if one changes the Hebrew verb from one form to another, it does not alter the plain sense of the word beget in Hebrew. If one altered the text to a hifil form of the Hebrew word to beget, the meaning of the verb is still to beget, to bring into existence, which on the Trinitarian theory of the eternal Son is impossible. Both the kal and the hifil forms of yadad, the Hebrew word here in the Hebrew Bible, mean to beget. I cite this example merely to show how Rather than releasing a cherished traditional theory about an unoriginated son, scholars who otherwise hold scripture in high regard would rather sacrifice principles of integrity than abandon what is only a tradition. It is refreshing to return to the work of other modern scholars who are not resisting the text in support of a long-held dogma originating in the centuries following the writing of the New Testament. Professor James Dunn brings us back to reality and plain good sense with his observation that Matthew's and Luke's birth narratives portray the virginal conception as, and I quote, Jesus' origin as the begetting or becoming of Jesus to be God's Son. It's a begetting, a becoming which is in view, the coming into existence of one who will be called and will in fact be the Son of God, not the transition of a pre-existent being to become the soul of a human baby or the metamorphosis of a divine being into a human fetus. That's from Professor Dunn's book, Christology in the Making. Raymond Brown is equally candid and fair in his treatment of the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke. He makes no attempt to equate, quote, orthodoxy with the views of these writers of Scripture. For this see his birth of the Messiah, he repeatedly tells us that Matthew and Luke 
have no doctrine of pre-existence or incarnation. Orthodoxy then leaves us bewildered when we are told that Christ's birth is not the origin of his personality, but only its entrance in the conditions of human life. This leads to the strange idea that Christ, quote, could not be quite passive in the moment of conception as we are. He could not come in this way into existence, but because he previously existed, his conception was his own deed. He assumed consciously and freely our human nature. That comment is from James Orr, D.D., The Virgin Birth of Christ. But the biblical accounts of the origin of Jesus leave no room at all for this extraordinary teaching that Jesus was responsible for his own conception. Fortunately, the same authority admits that Matthew and Luke, quote, say nothing about Christ's pre-existence, but speak as if he first began to be at his birth in Bethlehem. That's exactly right. But they do not just speak, quote, as if these are the facts. They declare the actual facts about the all-important origin of Jesus. They provide thus a plain definition of who he is. The beginning of the Son's existence is an historical event marked by his conception or begetting. And Matthew and Luke composed their Gospels after Paul wrote his epistles. This is very strong evidence that neither the Gospels nor Paul thought of Jesus as alive before his birth. The New Testament is unified in its testimony to the human Jesus, the human Messiah. It is in the highest degree improbable that Luke and Paul did not agree on who Jesus was. Getting rid of unwanted biblical words. The begetting of the Son was the subject of a grand prophetic utterance in Psalm 2 verse 7. For what later became so-called orthodoxy, the begetting of the Son was an impossible concept. The word, quote, beget had to be eliminated by a drastic denial of its actual meaning. The begetting of the Son was pronounced by the Church Fathers to be timeless. But far from being a timeless event, which is anyway impossible if the word beget is to retain its meaning, God's action in Psalm 2 verse 7 was to happen, quote, today. The Church Fathers and later Luther and many who have followed him seem to have no qualms about voiding the term today and beget of their clear import. Celebrated church father Origen disposed of the awkward information about the origin of the Son of God. You are my son, this day I have begotten you. This is spoken to him by God, with whom all time is today, for there is no evening with God, as I consider, and there is no morning, nothing but time that stretches out along with his unbeginning and unseen life. The day is today with him, God, in which the Son was begotten, 
and thus the beginning of his birth is not found, as neither is the day of it. That's from Origen Commentary on John. Augustine, on whom much of our Western theology is built, gets rid of the concept of the begetting or coming into existence of the Son with the same arbitrary treatment of the biblical text. What is he to do with the awkward fact that the Son of God begins to exist on a certain day? Augustine comments on Psalm 2, verse 7. Although that day may also seem to be prophetically spoken of on which Jesus Christ was born according to the flesh, and in eternity there is nothing past as if it had ceased to be, nor future as if it were not yet, but present only, since whatever is eternal always is. Yet as, quote, today intimates presentiality, a divine interpretation is given to that expression. Quote, today I have begotten you, whereby the uncorrupt and Catholic faith proclaims the eternal generation of the power and wisdom of God, who is the only begotten Son. That's from Augustine's Expositions on the Psalms. The Protestant Smith's Bible Dictionary, under Son of God, asks us to believe, after correctly defining Son of God as Messiah, that, and I quote, in a still higher sense, that title is applied by God to his only Son, begotten by eternal generation, see Psalm 2 verse 7, as interpreted in the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 1 verse 5 and chapter 5 verse 5. The word today in that passage being expressive of the act of God with whom is no yesterday nor tomorrow. Luther is quoted in support. Quote, in eternity there is no past and no future but a perpetual today. End of quote. Luther's uncritical copying of the Church Fathers, especially Rigen, on this doctrine points to how far the Reformation was merely partial. In the third century, Rigen had claimed that God begat his Son by an eternal generation. He warns us against any ordinary understanding of the word beget. Human thought cannot apprehend how the unbegotten God becomes the father of the only begotten Son. He calls the generation of the Son eternal and endless. Other church fathers remain agnostic about the generation of the Son. Irenaeus, quote, admits he does not understand how the Son is produced from the Father. That's in Roger Olson and Christopher Hall's book, The Trinity. He speaks of the event being ineffable and reduces the word, quote, beget to the existence of an attribute of God. Or perhaps the begetting of the Son is, quote, emitting of a material substance. Later theologians shied away from this model as suggesting, as it obviously does, a beginning in time. The Hebrew word for today occurs some 350 times in the Old Testament and has nothing to do with eternity. 
the precious text, quote, Today I have caused you to come into existence as son, Psalm 2.7, has been sacrificed to the requirements of a post-biblical dogma which denied that the Son of God had a beginning in time. Thus the messianic Son of David and of God, Luke 1, verses 32 to 35, was turned into a second member of an eternal Godhead. The Messiah of Scripture promised as the offspring and descendant of David and thus of the tribe of Judah was replaced by a strange visitor from outside the human race, C.S. Lewis. As for, quote, the eternal begetting of the Son, in our own time theology has had to indulge in much, quote, waffly language to avoid the obvious fact that in the Bible the Son is begotten by a miracle in Mary. Imagine, says C.S. Lewis, two books lying on a table, one on top of the other, forever and ever. Such, he says, is the eternal begetting of the Son. There has been an everlasting relationship between the two. By this learned, quote, spin, C.S. Lewis avoided the word beget. From James Townsend, C.S. Lewis theology, somewhere between ransom and reepicheep. From the Journal of the Grace Evangelical Society. Lewis also tackled an explanation of what is commonly called the eternal generation of the Son. One of the creeds says that Christ is the Son of God begotten, not created, which has nothing to do with the fact that when Christ was born on earth as a man, that man was the son of a virgin. Rather, what God begets is God. This negative explanation clarifies somewhat, but is not overly helpful. Elsewhere, he penned that, quote, the one begets and the other is begotten. The father's relation to the son is not the same as the son's relation to the father. Christ as son, Lewis observed, cannot mean that he stands to God the father in the very same physical and temporal relation which exists between offspring and a male parent in the animal world. This doctrine involves, quote, a harmonious relation involving homogeneity. The normally ingenious and down-to-earth Lewis left his readers in the complicated and heady realms of theological disquisition on this doctrine. But, let's face it, who has ever heard a clearly illustrated exposition of it from the pulpit? In one more attempt, Lewis declared, the Son exists because the Father exists. But there never was a time before the Father produced the Son. Lewis would probably have done better to steer clear of this subject altogether. So writes James Townsend in an article, C.S. Lewis's Theology, somewhere between Ransom and Reepicheep. The church would have done immeasurably better to leave all this anti-biblical speculation alone and stay with Matthew and Luke as a basis for their definition of God and Jesus. Lewis was surely out of his depth, gallantly trying to defend his, quote, orthodoxy, but having abandoned the New Testament creed of Jesus and the accounts of the origin of the Son of God. 
To beget does not mean just to have a harmonious relationship involving homogeneity. One book resting on another has nothing to do with one book begetting the other. The analogy fails to convince. To beget is much more than having a relationship. It means to cause someone to come into being. Begetting initiates a new person. The Bible in basic English captures the sense of Psalm 2 verse 7 well. Quote, you are my son. This day I have given you being. That verse lies behind the accounts of Jesus' origin in Mary, in Matthew and Luke. And Paul applies it to the beginning of the son's life in Acts 13.33. Note F.F. F. Bruce's important comment. The promise of Acts 13.23 finds fulfillment in verse 33. It has to do with the sending of the Messiah, not his resurrection, for which see verse 34. That's from Bruce's book and commentary on the Acts of the Apostles. Hebrews 1.5 and 5 verse 5 likewise explain the begetting of the Son as the fulfillment of the promise that God would be father of the son of David. Hebrews 1 verse 5 combining Psalm 2 verse 7 and 2 Samuel verse 14 to make the same point. And confirming the event as the birth of Jesus by adding a third supporting quotation when he brings the firstborn into the world, William Michaelis finds, brings the firstborn into the world as suitable for the birth of the Son. Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. In earlier writings, I had favoured a reference to the second coming there, but on balance I think that the three Old Testament quotations make the same point as in Hebrews 2, verses 12 and 13. John, who is supposed to be the chief witness of an eternal Son of God, speaks of Jesus as, quote, the one who was begotten, 1 John 5, verse 18. He who was begotten preserves the believer. As we saw in some manuscripts, attempts were made to get rid of this embarrassing verse by avoiding the word begotten as descriptive of Jesus. But the reference to the Son who was begotten survives clearly in modern translations based on a more secure manuscript reading. Prodigious displays of verbal dexterity characterize the attempts of writers seeking to justify the non-biblical creed, which includes an eternally begotten so-called son. Once the plain meaning of words is jettisoned, the Bible could be made to say almost anything. In the case of God begetting his son Jesus, the plain sense had to be replaced if the Son was to be made co-eternal with the Father. Luke was lucidly clear. His nativity account explains the beginning of the Son, how this happened by a divine biological miracle. Equally obvious is Luke's mention of the Holy Spirit as the instrument of God's creative miracle performed in Mary. The Holy Spirit causes the reader to think immediately of the creative activity of the Spirit in Genesis 1, excluding any thought of an uncreated son. 
John chapter 1. Less obvious than the attempt to avoid the word beget was the intrusive capital W put on the word word in John 1 verse 1, creating the impression that there are two persons in the Godhead. But John did not write, in the beginning was the Son, and it is proper to render John 1 3 as, quote, all things were made through it, the Word. I note that all eight English versions before the King James Version, starting with Tyndale's translation, read, quote, all things were made through it. In the King James Version, this was altered to by him. Many translations in other languages read the word, with lowercase w, as purpose or intention, and thus describe it as, quote, it, not him. John speaks of the neuter light as him in John 1.10, and he's thinking of the Son as then in existence, but not before his birth. Jesus is what the Word or wisdom became, not one-to-one -one equivalent to the Word, which never in the Hebrew Bible means spokesman. The Word did not assume flesh, as in orthodoxy, it became flesh, a human person. God's wisdom was expressed in a perfect human being whose origin was carefully described in Matthew and Luke and whom John recognized as uniquely begotten, monoyenis in the Greek. The root of that word is yinome, which means to become or come into existence. See further our article on John 1.1, caveat lector at our site, restorationfellowship.org. In addition, and in the interests of pushing the text in favor of the traditional Jesus, the NIV seemed determined to leave the reader with the wrong impression when it made Jesus say he was returning or going back to God. John 13, 3, John 16, 28, and John 20, verse 17. What in fact Jesus said was that he was going to God, not going back or returning to him. He could not be returning since he had not yet been in heaven with the Father. He achieved this only at the ascension. Readers of the NIV, NAB, and NLT are made to think that Jesus went back to the Father. This, however, is not what the Greek says. The Jesus of John is the new Moses. Only by putting a capital W on the word word or logos in John 1.1 is any difficulty produced. When a second pre-existing person is forced into John, the testimony of Matthew and Luke about the real beginning of Jesus is contradicted. John begins by referring to the creative activity of the one God, his word, lowercase word, or wisdom, is his divine intention and mind. God's plans and purposes are, in Jewish thinking, said to be with God. John later wrote in his epistle, 1 John 1, 1-2, in clarification of the opening of his gospel, that life was with the Father. The word was with God, in John 1, 1, just as life was with, pros, 
the Father in 1 John 1 and verse 2. See also Job 10.13 and Job 23.14 for God's intent being with him. The Jesus of John is the new Moses. Jesus is that life become flesh, the divine program for immortality unveiled to us. The mind of God is uniquely expressed in the man Jesus. Jesus is, quote, walking wisdom. Paul calls him the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24. Jews like Philo could speak of Moses as, quote, according to God's forethought, the logical and animated law. When the word became flesh in Jesus, this was equivalent as John writes, to grace and truth coming by Jesus in John 1.17. Jesus is the embodiment of God's gracious purpose, just as Moses was earlier the embodiment of the law or Torah. In neither case is it necessary to suppose that these pillars of God's plan were alive before their birth, creating a complexity which led to centuries of unresolved dispute. Jewish writing spoke of Moses as foreknown, that is, planned in God's purpose. The concept of a pre-existing purpose is well understood by some leading scholars. C.B. Caird, in his, quote, The Development of Christ in the New Testament, reflects on the Jewish background to John 1. Quote, the Jews had believed only in the pre-existence of a personification, either of a divine attribute or of a divine purpose, but never a person that's in Christ for us today, written by C.B. Caird. It is quite unnecessary to turn the purpose of God into a second person existing from eternity. The Son is the human being promised as the descendant of David. And as such, he is the covenant-bound purpose of God, quote, foreknown and then manifested. 1 Peter 1, verse 20. There's no eternal son who, quote, assumes or puts on flesh. Rather, the word comes into existence as flesh. A yenito in Greek, which means became or come to exist in John 1, 14. The same word describes the appearance of John the Baptist. A human person begotten in Mary as the uniquely begotten son full of grace and truth, John 1.14, a man who perfectly expresses God's will for us all. At Qumran, contemporaries of John were using almost the same language as John to describe God's eternal purpose. John shares the thought world of the Dead Sea Scrolls documents. Quote, All things came into being through it, the logos or word, and apart from it, nothing came into being that has come into being. So writes John in John 1.3. Compare with this verse the statement in 1 Q.S. 11.11. Quote, By his knowledge... Everything has been brought into being, and everything that is he established by his purpose, and apart from him nothing is done.
John and the Qumran writers worked out of a common Hebrew heritage. John, of course, telling us that God's great purpose had been, quote, with him, that's to say, in his mind, John 1.1, 1, 1, from the beginning. And it became concrete reality in the man Messiah Jesus, John 1.14. Job had spoken of God's plans and purposes as being, quote, with him, meaning that they were concealed in his heart. Quote, these things you have concealed in your heart, I know that this is with you. Job 10.13. Another quotation from Job. He performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. Job 23, verse 14. With him are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understanding. With him are strength and sound wisdom. That's from Job 12, verses 13 and 16. There's no need at all to capitalize word in John 1, 1, forcing readers to suppose that a second person has existed as God from eternity, thus shattering the first principle of sound theology that God is one person, not two or three, as Jesus said so clearly in John 17, verse 3. John 1 introduces the word or wisdom of God as his self-expression and his creative activity. The Genesis account is recalled and provides John with a way of introducing the new creation in Jesus. God's word is full of life and light, and the darkness, quote, did not overpower it, not him, in verse 5 of John 1. John then describes the historical event of the coming of John the Baptist, who was sent from God. Verse 6, he was a witness to the true light, which when it comes into the world, verse 9, was the sun. John 1, from verse 6, describes the appearing of John and Jesus, the Son of God. The light coming into the world is now described as, quote, him, afton, in John 1. 1.10, rather than it, afto, in verse 5. Verse 14 resumes the description of the historical son and introduces for the first time the title, Uniquely Begotten Son from the Father, just as John was also from God, in verse 6. Verse 13 recalls the virginal begetting of the son, probably by comparing it with Christian rebirth. John has not overthrown the clear accounts of Matthew and Luke about the genesis, the Greek word genesis, in Matthew 1, verses 1, 18, the genesis, that is, of the Son. John 17, 3, one and only one God, the Father. The straightforward evidence that the God of Scripture is a single person, so designated by repeated singular personal pronouns, has been discarded by theologians who desire a more philosophical view of God. This foray into the world of philosophy was undertaken with a price. It is hard to, quote, kick against the goads of singular personal pronouns and other equally simple and telling words describing God and Jesus. 
I propose that what has happened is this, a brand new vocabulary, church speak, so to speak, had to be invented to lend plausibility to the concept that going beyond the Unitarian creed of Jesus is legitimate. The revised vocabulary is as follows. God is not a person, they say. He's an essence or substance. He shares a unity of essence eternally with two others in the Godhead. Jesus knew nothing of such a creed. The church legitimizes this by calling it a shift, quote, within biblical monotheism from the unitary monotheism of Israel to the Trinitarianism of the Council of Chalcedon. You'll find that quotation in Harold O.J. Brown's book, Heresies. But Jesus did not authorize this shift. Far from it. He solemnly declared that the essence of eternal life is that they should know, quote, you, Father, John 17, 1, as the only one who is truly God and Jesus Christ, whom you sent, John 17, 3. It is at this verse that one of the most startling manipulations of the text of Scripture has occurred. The celebrated Augustine, unable to find his beloved Trinity in Jesus' words, decided to rewrite the utterance of Jesus to accommodate a creed about which Jesus knew nothing. Here is how Augustine deals with John 17.3 in his Homilies on John. Quote, And this, he, Jesus, adds, is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The proper order of the words is, Augustine declared, that they may know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, as the only true God. That's from Augustine's Tractates on the Gospel of John. Augustine was followed in this rewriting of John 17.3 by Beza, Aquinas, Aricius, and several others. H.A.W. Meyer refers to the alteration of the text as a, quote, perversion running counter to the strict monotheism of John. That's from Meyer's commentary on the Gospel of John. In horror at what the church father Augustine had done here, fellow Trinitarian and distinguished commentator on the Greek New Testament, Henry Alford, wrote, quote, the Latin fathers, Augustine, Ambrose, Hilary, anxious to avoid the inference unwarrantably drawn by some from this verse against the Godhead of Christ, read, quote, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you sent as the only true God. Others, Chrysostom, Euthymius, regarded Jesus Christ as included in the words, only true God. But all such violences, Henry Alford said, violences to the text, that is, are unnecessary. That's from Henry Alford's The Greek Testament. This change of word order is in fact an assault on scripture. 
Alford then goes on to make the following extraordinary claim. The very juxtaposition of Jesus Christ here with the Father and the knowledge of both being defined to be eternal life is a proof by implication of the Godhead of Christ. The knowledge of God and a creature could not be eternal life and the juxtaposition of the two would not be conceivable. The same Henry Alford was forced from his usual straightforward honesty about biblical words when dealing with the critical word beget. In applying Psalm 2-7 to our Lord, we want another and higher sense in both words, begotten and today, which may be applicable to Jesus, a sense in which I should be disposed to say the words must, in the fullness of meaning, be taken to the neglect and almost the obliteration of their supposed lower reference. The reader will note the admission that the ordinary, plain sense of beget has to be obliterated. A, quote, higher sense needed to be invented to cover the traditional departure from the historically begotten Messiah of Scripture. But that, quote, higher sense eliminates the ordinary, plain, and actual reference to the word beget. Such loose procedure in the matter of defining words is certainly not characteristic of Henry Alford, but the so-called system drove him to it in the case of Psalm 2, verse 7. A word does not receive, quote, a higher meaning when it's emptied of its actual significance. Such was the grip of the orthodox definition of the Son of God on an otherwise clear-sighted commentator. God, he said, cannot be so coordinated with a creature. But who is to say what God may do? Is he not at liberty to provide as our Saviour the man-Messiah Jesus? and take him to be our mediator next to his throne, in a supreme position at the right hand of God. Paul had no difficulty with this, and as if to anticipate and ward off any confusion over God and Jesus, Paul wrote late in his career, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Messiah Jesus. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. When Jesus was promoted to being God, equal with the Father, Mary was elevated to the position of human and therefore more sympathetic, is that the idea? As a mediatrix. One mistake led to another. This statement of Paul, that there is one God, the Father, and one man, Messiah, is the backbone of New Testament revelation. Even where Paul speaks of the ascended Jesus as having conferred on him a supreme position or name in Philippians 2, 9, this is all, quote, to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2, 11. In, rather than at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, verse 10. God is still the Father of Jesus, Far from modifying Unitarianism in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, 
Paul concludes by affirming it. Augustine's adherence to tradition led him to rewrite the words of Jesus and of Scripture in John 17.3 and to the astonishing conclusion that the Son was sent by the Father and the Son. He described, quote, the mechanics of the incarnation. Quote, man was added to him, that's to say added to the pre-existing Son, God not lost to him. He emptied himself not by losing what he was, but by taking to him what he was not. That's from Augustine on the Trinity. In this extraordinary picture of the Son, the Son was older than himself. Jesus had two distinct, quote, components. He was a person who antedated his own birth, and then he added a new component to himself. He added to himself what he was not. The son who was born to Mary arrived equipped with his own pre-existing personality. Such were the demands of the amazing system Augustine had inherited. Augustine was notorious also for his arbitrary treatment of the words of the Bible in connection with the millennium. He argued that the thousand-year reign of Christ is an indefinite period starting at the cross. Augustine said, The first resurrection was not a literal resurrection at all. Peake's commentary on the Bible properly refers to Augustine's treatment of the words of Revelation 20 as, quote, dishonest trifling, simply playing with terms. The same must be said about the Trinitarian treatment of the very common biblical word beget. We dare not eradicate its meaning and pretend that it just means to be in relationship with another. It means to bring into existence. In the case of the Son, to beget was connected with a definite moment in time, today. That marvellous moment arrived some 2,000 years ago as the fulfilment of God's ancient promise to produce a son in the house of David. The historical facts about the beginning or begetting of Jesus. Knowing the promises of the Hebrew Bible, Matthew speaks of the begetting of the Son of God by direct intervention of God as his spirit performed a biological miracle in Mary. This Matthew calls the origin in Greek, Genesis, of the Son, Matthew 1, verse 18. It is the time when the Son began to exist. The angel speaks to Joseph and assures him that, quote, what is begotten in her, Matthew 1, 20, is from Holy Spirit, divine operational presence and power. The Son, so begotten, is then appropriately called, quote, my, that is God's Son, who is brought into the land from Egypt just as Israel had been. Matthew 2.15 Jesus is God's new, quote, Israel, and he acts as the nation should have, shining the light of truth to the rest of the world. Luke, as we have noted, Keen to establish the fact about the faith in which Theophilus had been catechized, informs Mary that, quote, what is begotten 
is from the Holy Spirit, Luke 1.35. Based on the miracle in Mary, the Holy Child begotten, or possibly to be begotten, is entitled, for that reason, precisely, precisely for that reason, he's entitled to be called Son of God. Paul, in Romans 1, verses 3 to 4, speaks of God's Son who, quote, came into existence from the seed of David as far as human lineage is concerned. He was later declared to be Son of God in a public display of power effected by his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. Paul preached the same fact in Acts 13.33, where his proof text is Psalm 2, verse 7. Quote, this day I have begotten you to describe the raising up, that's to say the production of the Son as promised in Scripture. Acts 13, verse 23. The writer to the Hebrews provides the same Psalm 2, verse 7, quote, this day I have begotten you, as a second witness to the prediction and promise given by Nathan in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, reported in Hebrews 1, verse 5. God had assured David that he would be father to the Messiah, and the Messiah would thus be Son of God. In both Old Testament verses, the precious truth about the origin of the Son at a specific moment in time, and as the direct descendant of a specific Jewish family, is guaranteed. The origin of the Messiah as God's son and the son of David, with Mary as the biological mother, was meant to establish with complete clarity the beginning point and the nature of the one Son of God. The story was dealt a devastating blow when speculative, philosophically trained church fathers shifted the original begetting of the Son from known history back into prehistoric times and eventually back into eternity. Hence the, quote, eternally begotten Son of the Creeds was created as a mythological substitute for the historical Son of God and Son of David. As Martin Werner complained, this was a move, and I quote, behind which the historical Jesus completely disappeared. That's from Martin Werner's book, The Formation of Christian Dogma. Werner adds that the message of Jesus had been, quote, falsified, when it was interpreted in terms of the Church's later dogmas of the Trinity, the two natures. Thus, Werner says, was the religion of Christ set over against the Christian religion as something essentially different. Werner concluded, I quote, Whereas the relationship between primitive Christianity and early Catholicism had remained Finally, dark to early Protestantism, historical research was now able to show the form of early church doctrine as an essential deviation from the content of the teaching of Jesus 
and the primitive Christianity of the Apostles. That's from Werner's book, The Formation of Christian Dogma. Mary conceived and bore a child. If Mary was taking into herself a being undergoing transformation from a spiritual being to a human person, Luke and Matthew have misled us. There's no room in the womb for two persons, one added to the other. Would this be a form of twins? Mary did not bear a person who is two, quote, holes, W-H-O-L-E-S, fully God and fully man. She did not bear a double person, a pre-existing spirit person adding to himself a human being. The biblical account of the Genesis of Jesus is much simpler. Mary bore the blood descendant of David, one person, the promised Messiah whose coming into existence was promised for a definite moment in history. Mary conceived a child six months later than her relative Elizabeth. She did not take in and transform a person into a fetus. By the time the church councils had finished with their new account of the origin of the Son of God, the Son had been cut in two. He was said to have had an existence before coming into existence. His real origin, it was said, was before Genesis. This was the view of Arius and the later Neo-Arians, Aetius and Eunomius. What became the permanently orthodox view espoused by Athanasius held that Jesus was begotten in a timeless eternity. Both mistaken views battled it out for decades and the church settled finally on the Jesus of Chalcedon in two natures, his real ego being that of the eternal second member of the triune Godhead. But what became of the historical lineal descendant of David who originated by miracle in Mary? What was left of the meticulously constructed accounts of Matthew and Luke about who Jesus really was? No one seemed to notice that the virginal begetting coming into existence of the Son of God should have blocked any suggestion of a double origin. The Son was not begotten, that's to say brought into existence twice, once in eternity and then later in history. His historical origin as a descendant of David was completely sufficient to guarantee his claim to be the Messiah. A son of God whose origin was removed from the biological chain was a stranger and unfit to qualify according to the divine promise guaranteeing the Messiah as the lineal descendant of David as well as the procreated son of God. Dead Sea Scrolls It is now well known that the Dead Sea Scrolls reflect many of the messianic themes of the New Testament. The Qumran sect was expecting a coming Messiah. Texts such as the patriarchal blessings look forward to, quote, the coming of the righteous Messiah, the sprout of David. See also 4Q, Flor, 1 to 2, and 2, verse 11, and in addition 4Q, P, 
P. Isaiah 8 to 10, verse 17. We read of, quote, the coming of the Messiah of Aaron and Israel in the Damascus document. Parallel to the Old Testament Mashiach, Messiah, is also expected as a prophet. The scroll contains a variety of biblical titles for the expected Messiah, quote, branch of David, or scepter, and star. Most significantly, we read in 1st Q Samuel 2, verse 11, that's to say the rule of the community, that document, of the time, quote, when God will beget the Messiah and of the Messiah as God's firstborn son. That's from 4Q369. This Messiah is to have the power to raise the dead. That's from 4Q521, line 12. Nothing is said of a son of God who has no beginning or who is eternally generated, so-called. The writer of the Hebrews likewise speaks of God bringing his firstborn into the inhabited earth. Hebrews 1, verse 6. The New Testament is part of the intellectual world of the Jews, with the scrolls mention of God's Son and his inheritance they, quote, do help us understand why the evangelists Matthew and Luke would be interested in presenting Jesus' birth in such a light. That's a quotation from Michael Wise and Martin Abegg, Jr. and Edward Cook in their book, The Dead Sea Scrolls, a new translation. Once again, the surrounding background of the New Testament demonstrates how first-century Christianity is a messianic faith holding in common with Jews the belief that God would bring into existence the Messiah, Son of God. The Messiah who has come once is coming back to rule on earth in the future kingdom of God, promised throughout Scripture and prayed for in the well-known petition, Thy kingdom come. The same prayer is repeated in the request, Maranatha, may our Lord come. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Our Lord is the Lord Messiah, prophetically designated as my Lord, with lowercase l, in Psalm 110, verse 1. That precious verse is the master key to the identity of Jesus in relation to the one God. More on pre-existence. When Psalm 110.1 was abandoned by the creeds, which could no longer recognize the distinction between the Lord God, Yahweh, and the Lord Messiah, my Lord, lowercase l, Adoni, the figure of Jesus was severely obscured. The best that church members could do was to speak of the, quote, pre-existence of Jesus, but what does that word pre-existence really mean? As recently as 2003, a leading Roman Catholic scholar, Luke Timothy Johnson, asked in his book, The Creed, What Christians Believe and Why It Matters, 
Quote, how can someone exist before existing? How can Jesus Christ exist before Jesus was born in Bethlehem? That's from Luke Timothy Johnson's book, The Creed. That question ought to set off a mighty avalanche of questioning, reflection, and rethinking among thoughtful churchgoers. The answer is that one cannot pre-exist oneself. Pre-existence is a clever cover-up term for holding to two existences, and thus two distinct persons. One has been added to the other, and the blanket term, quote, pre-existence, is supposed to help us gloss over the fact that the first pre-existing person cannot be the same as the second person. A single person cannot be older than himself. An individual cannot begin the same one journey at two different times. Since Jesus, the Son of God, came into existence, that is, was begotten in Mary, this marks the moment when he began to be. Matthew has expressly informed us about the genesis, in Greek, genesis, of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1, verse 1, and Matthew 1, verse 18. What pre-existed him is someone else attempting to attach himself to the real Jesus. On that theory, the real Jesus comes into existence burdened by a strange other person who accompanies him and gets confused with him. Pre-existence, so-called, appears to be a way of papering over the obvious cracks in the theory that a single person can pre-exist himself. Luke 1.32 informs us that the makeup of the personality who is the Son of God is composed of two elements. He is both Son of God, as to say, Son of the Highest, and Son of David in the expression, his father David, and so constituted by miracle in the human biological chain. No further complication is needed. Luke Timothy Johnson, rather than face the solution to his own excellent question about, quote, pre-existence, excuses the term on the plea that we humans are forced to talk about matters which are beyond us. Luke Timothy Johnson says, pre-existence, so-called, is an unfortunate term, but it is the understandable consequence of creatures who live in time trying to speak about God who dwells outside time. Such language seeks to express in ways we can understand that somehow God was in the one we call Jesus from beginning to end. Yes, but why does he start with the assumption, unwarranted by Scripture, that God begat a son outside of time? Luke reports that Mary became pregnant six months later than Elizabeth. Fortunately, God is not so limited by language. He created language. He gives us a clear concept of time and speaks to us within those terms. He deliberately allowed historical time to elapse 
before he determined, according to his own promises, to bring into existence his own dear son, or, quote, the son of his love, Colossians 1.13. He fixed that event for a specific geographical place at a definite moment of time. Moreover, he recorded meticulously the step-by-step -step genealogical line which links the ancestry of the Saviour, not into timelessness, but back into the history of the Israelite people, in fact, back to Adam, as Luke tells us in Luke 3.38. Jesus, the Son of God, is thus happily a single person with a single origin in history, one affected by a biological miracle guaranteeing that God is uniquely his father while his ancestry is rooted in Israel. He's not older than himself or older as well as younger than his cousin John, born six months before him. There are no insoluble riddles and mysteries here, merely a historical account of the one God's determination to produce the head of the new creation, the second Adam and Messiah, Son of God. All this Luke had investigated carefully and describes as the core and foundation of the Christian faith he is recommending. In modern times, the extreme illogicality of so-called pre-existence the notion that one person can begin to exist when he already exists was described as follows. The concept of pre-existence is an attempt to explain the fundamentally irrational relation between a being empirically known to exist and another being who is in existence apart from and prior to the empirical and temporal world, a relation which is rationalized by the idea of incarnation. Jesus' own conception was different. The idea of pre-existence was not in his thought. That idea puts a being, a life, in paradoxical or contradictory relation to a being which has always existed. That's from Rudolf Otto's book, The Kingdom of God and the Son of Man. It's important that Bible readers reflect on the precious teaching of Matthew and Luke about the origin or genesis of Matthew 1, verse 1 and 18, the origin of the Son of God. That origin establishes who he is. As a French professor of the history of religion wrote, no thought, either of pre-existence or of incarnation, was associated in Matthew and Luke's minds with the virginal begetting. The fact is that the two ideas cannot be reconciled. A pre-existent being who becomes man reduces himself, if you will, to the state of a human embryo. But he is not conceived, as the birth narratives say he was, by action exterior to himself in the womb of a mother. Conception is the point at which an individual is formed who did not exist before, at least as an individual.
That's from Albert Reville, History of the Dogma of the Deity of Jesus. When experts write about pre-existence, without which there is no trinity, they are faced with a perplexing difficulty. They admit that Old Testament expectation of the Messiah was, quote, of a king of the line of David, born of the human stock. Jeremiah 30, verse 21, though supernaturally endowed and blessed. They go on to say that, quote, a higher conception is suggested by, quote, the mighty God and, quote, father of eternity. Jewish translators of the Septuagint render this messianic title as father of the age to come. Jesus is indeed the supervisor and, quote, parent of the new order of the kingdom of God. In Isaiah, the dictionary of Christ and the Gospels can claim no certainty at all that the Hebrew Bible thought of the Messiah as existing literally in ancient times. It concedes that the prophets may have thought of the Messiah's existence only, quote, in the eternal counsels of God. The dictionary is equally hesitant about any real pre-existence in the Synoptic Gospels. There's no firm ground for finding a pre-existent Messiah. There are, quote, but few hints. Psalm 110.1, quote, would seem to imply, but he doesn't say how, or definitely that it does. A similar conclusion might be drawn, possibly. The dictionary concedes also that the sermons in the book of Acts, quote, confine themselves to the historical manifestation of Jesus Christ. Pre-existence, says the Dictionary of the Apostolic Church, quote, does not belong to the primary data of Christian faith in the historic and exalted Jesus. It forms no element in the primitive doctrine recorded in the opening chapters of Acts. The Dictionary adds that, quote, it is a necessary implicate of that faith, but there are difficulties. Here we are confronted with a problem. The thought of the apostolic church has advanced in Paul from the position reflected in the first chapters of Acts, in which there's no hint of a doctrine of pre-existence. Advanced, that is, to that presupposed even in the earlier Pauline epistles, where its presence and activity are fully assumed. But how did this amazing transition take place? Quote, a process of development so gradual, silent, and unconscious as to have left no trace, bridges, so they say, the distance between the Pentecostal discourses and Colossians. But the dictionary admits that, quote, little or no use is made of the conception of pre-existence in First Peter. So Peter knows nothing of the extraordinary so-called new view of Jesus as pre-existent son. Peter indeed speaks of Jesus as foreknown in 1 Peter 1.20. And note that Jeremiah was also foreknown, but certainly not pre-existent. Jeremiah 1 verse 5. Foreknowledge excludes pre-existence. The attempt of the dictionary to justify the later doctrine 
of a son who did not begin in his mother's womb finishes by speaking only of, quote, an innate necessity of thought as a basis for this, quote, remarkable transition from the Jesus of Acts and Peter to what he supposes Paul in his later epistles says about Jesus as a pre-existing son. However, the transition is imagined. Paul knew of, quote, the rock which followed Israel, 1 Corinthians 10.4, as a type of Christ, not Christ himself pre-existing literally. The use of the word typically twice in 1 Corinthians 10, in verses 6 and 11, Paul speaks of the Son as coming into existence from a woman. Galatians 4 verse 4, which excludes a prior existence. The fact that the Son was, quote, sent proves nothing about a previous life for the Son. All of God's prophets and agents were, quote, sent. If the Son of God comes into existence in history, as the Gospels say, he cannot also exist before that. Talk of, quote, pre-existence camouflages what is really the introduction of another Jesus who pre-exists the historical Jesus. Christians are urged in the New Testament to recognize, believe in, and follow the actual Jesus of history, not another being who existed before the existence of the actual Son. More on John's Gospel. Trinitarian arguments make their appeal very extensively from the fourth gospel. This in itself should raise suspicions. Was it only in the 90s AD that the beloved disciple felt the need to show how the creed of Israel had now been expanded to include two or three extra persons? Was the affirmation of the creed of Israel by Jesus in Mark 12, verses 28 to 34, Mark writing probably around 65 AD, was that creed of Jesus now to be superseded or shifted? Can the doctrine of God be so radically altered without a huge treatment of this colossal change, if ever, in fact, it took place? John, who was no doubt familiar with the work of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and certainly did not intend to contradict them, is as emphatically supportive of the Jewish view of Jesus that God is a single person as any New Testament writer. He wrote his whole book to convince us that Jesus is to be believed in as, quote, Messiah, Son of God, John 20, verse 31, thus registering his complete agreement with Peter's confession so strongly approved by Jesus in Matthew 16, verses 16 to 18. During Jesus' extended discourses, as recorded by John, Jesus constantly insists that he can act only in cooperation with and subordination to the Father who gives him his orders. The Jesus of John refers to God as, quote, my God, John 20, 17, and declares emphatically that he can do nothing by himself. John 5, 19. 
but only in response to the commands of his Father, who is the one God, the only true God. John 17, 3. John the Baptist pointed out that Jesus had moved ahead of him, quote, because he was always my superior, John 1, 15 and 30. Translations force pre-existence into the text here. The words before me can equally be translated superior to me. Thus, the Geneva Bible translates better than I. Rotherham translates my chief he was. C.H. Dodd translates, there's a man in my following who has taken precedence of me because he is and always has been essentially my superior, cited by J.A.T. Robinson in his book The Priority of John. The New International Commentary on John has this note, quote, a follower of mine has taken precedence of me for he always was before me my superior. Some scholars take the word first to mean not first in time, not before, but first in importance. He was my chief. See, for example, Leon Morris in his The Gospel According to John. Calvin says, more excellent than I. So also Barker's Bible in 1599, and many other commentators over the past 400 years. Jesus recognized that he had been seen in a vision as the Son of Man in Daniel 7, a human being alive with God and destined to receive the future kingdom of God. It is the human being, Son of Man, who pre-exists here. He was, of course, there, quote, before so-called, in the vision of Daniel. Even Trinitarians do not think that the human Jesus was alive in the time of Daniel. In John 17, 3, Jesus makes belief in unitary monotheism the basis of true faith. The Father is, quote, the only one who is truly God. Augustine recognized that this is the purest form of Unitarian statement and avoided it only by restructuring the order of the words as we saw above. Any Jew would have approved this. Jesus associates himself with the one God who is the Father, but he, Jesus, is at the same time numerically distinct. In John 17:5. Jesus requests that he now receive as the reward of his ministry then accomplished the glory, quote, which I had with you, the Father, before the foundation of the world. This is glory in prospect, glory promised in advance. He says nothing about regaining glory, temporarily forsaken, but of winning that glory for the first time. In the very same context, the same glory is promised by Jesus to disciples not even alive when Jesus spoke these words. I pray, quote, for those who are to believe in me through their, that's the apostles, word or message. Verse 20. I have given them, Jesus said, 
the glory which you have given to me. John 17, verse 22. It is glory promised, but not yet conferred. In the New Testament, rewards are regularly promised as existing now in heaven as treasure stored up for the future. If you, quote, parade your uprightness in public to attract attention, Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 1, quote, you have no reward with your Father, that is, stored up for the future with the Father. All the things of the future are laid up now with God. The glory Jesus requested for himself in John 17, 5 was glory in prospect and promise. He possessed it in God's decrees, and now it was time for it to be bestowed. The request reminds us of the statement, quote, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, Matthew 25, verse 34. The kingdom itself lies in the future, but it's been promised from the beginning. So too with the glory which Jesus asked to receive as a result of his completed work. The context of John 17, 5 in verses 20 and 22 should not be overlooked. Just as Paul was able to say that Christians, quote, have a body prepared in heaven, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1, though they do not actually have it yet, so too Jesus asked God to give him the glory which God had prepared for him, which he, quote, had with God, as to say, in God's intention. There's no need for this one verse to pose the problem of a second eternal person. Verses 22 and 24 of John's chapter 17 define glory as glory promised, glory in prospect, glory as future reward. Distinguished Trinitarians, Augustine and Calvin's colleague Theodore Beza, understood John 17, 5 as glory predestined before the world was, parallel to John's later statement that Jesus was, quote, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, verse 8. German commentator J.G. Rosenmüller was convinced that the glory of John 17, 5 was the same as Jesus would confer on his friends, verse 22. Anglican Bishop Samuel Parker, 1640 to 1687, was amongst many who see that there's nothing in John 17, verse 5, which would contradict the accounts of the origin of the Son of God. Quote, it was a proverbial form of speech among the Jews to express matters of great moment resolved upon only in the divine decrees, as if they were really existing. Thus they say that the Messiah is more ancient than the sun, S-U-N, and the Mosaic order older than the world, not as if they understand them really as such, but only to express their absolute usefulness and necessity. The glory which Jesus prayed for in John 17, 5, was that honor which God had from all eternity designed to dignify the Messiah. That's from Samuel Parker, a free and impartial censure 
of the Platonic philosophy. Professor Vent on John 8, 58 and 17, verse 5. There has been a steady protest against reading John in opposition to the other Gospels and making him produce an essentially non-human Jesus. It's a false method which promotes one only of the four Gospels in support of a Jesus unknown to the synoptics or the preparation for the Messiah in the promises of the Hebrew Bible. What John has not done is to alter the Unitarian creed of Jesus. John 17.3 is quite clear on this point. John 8.58 and 17.5 must be read in the light of John 17.3 and the rest of the Bible. Professor Vent was writing in the late 1800s. He said, I quote, It is clear that John 8.58 and 17 verse 5 do not speak of a real pre-existence of Christ. We must not treat these verses in isolation, but understand them in their context. The saying in John 8.58, Before Abraham came to be, I am, was prompted by the fact that Jesus' opponents had countered his remark in verse 51 by saying that Jesus was not greater than Abraham or the prophets. Verse 53. As the Messiah commissioned by God, Jesus is conscious of being, in fact, superior to Abraham and the prophets. For this reason he replies, according to the intervening words, verse 54, that Abraham had, quote, seen his day, i.e. the entrance of Jesus on his historical ministry, and had, quote, rejoiced to see that day. And Jesus strengthens his argument by adding the statement which sounded strange to the Jews that he had even been, quote, before Abraham, verse 58. This last saying must be understood in connection with verse 56. Jesus speaks in verse 55, 56, and 58 as if his present ministry on earth stretches back to the time of Abraham and even before. His sayings were perceived by the Jews in this sense and rejected as nonsense. But Jesus obviously did not, in verse 56, mean that Abraham had actually experienced Jesus' appearance on earth and seen it literally. Jesus was referring to Abraham's spiritual vision of his appearance on earth, by which Abraham, at the birth of Isaac, had foreseen at the same time the promised Messiah and had rejoiced at the future prospect of the greater one, the Messiah, who would be Israel's descendant. Jesus' reference to his existence before Abraham's birth must be understood in the same sense. There's no sudden heavenly pre-existence of the Messiah here. The reference is again, obviously, to his earthly existence. And this earthly existence is precisely the existence of the Messiah. As such, it was not only present 
in Abraham's mind, but even before his time, as the subject of God's foreordination and foresight. The sort of pre-existence Jesus had in mind is, quote, ideal, that's to say, in the world of ideas and plans. In accordance with this consciousness of being the Messiah, preordained from the beginning, Jesus can indeed make the claim to be greater than Abraham and the prophets in John 8.58. In John 17.3, Professor Wentz caught the Hebrew flavor of Jesus and John's words. Jesus asks the Father to give him now the heavenly glory which he had with the Father before the world was. The conclusion that because Jesus possessed a pre-existent glory in heaven, he must also have pre-existed personally in heaven, is taken too hastily. This is proven by Matthew 6, verse 20, quote, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And Matthew 25, verse 34, come, you blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Colossians 1, verse 5, the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, about which you heard in the word of truth, the gospel. And 1 Peter 1, verse 4, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, which does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Such a reward can also be thought of as pre-existent in heaven. Such a reward is destined for human beings and already held in store to be awarded to them at the end of their life. So it is with heavenly glory, which Jesus requests. He is not asking for a return to an earlier heavenly condition. Rather, he asks God to give him now, at the end of his work as Messiah on earth, verse 4, the heavenly reward which God had appointed from eternity for him as Messiah. As the Messiah and Son, he knows he has been loved and foreordained by the Father from eternity. Verse 24, both John 8.58 and John 17 verse 5 are concerned with God's predetermination of the Messiah. And a quotation from Professor Vint. I note too this. Did Jesus ever say he was going to return to the Father? Or did he just say he was going to the Father? There's a big difference between going and returning. John 13, verse 3, 16, verse 28, and John 20, verse 17 should be carefully examined in the King James or the RSV, as well as in the NIV. You will find a startling difference of translation, which is correct. You can look in a Greek-English interlinear or check the meaning of the words in Strong's. It is very illuminating, but remember that this is a rare case of poor translation in the NIV to push an idea which is not there. Jesus, in other words, said nothing about returning to the Father. The claim of Jesus is, in all four of the Gospels, to be the Messiah of Israel, and this claim is fully endorsed in John's specific purpose statement, 
that his gospel is designed to bring about belief in Jesus as the Messiah, Son of God. John 20, verse 31. Certainly not in a second one who is God, in a so-called expanded Shema, the messianic claim, I am he, I am the one, runs like a golden thread throughout the narrative of John's Gospel. Its basis is laid in the conversation with the woman at the well. Quote, I know that the Messiah is coming, she said. To which Jesus replied, I who speak to you am he. I am he, namely, the one speaking to you. John 4, 25, 26. As Messiah, Jesus is the one we must not fail to believe in, lest we die in our sins. John 8, 24. And in 8.56 of John's Gospel, the Messiahship of Jesus was foreseen by Abraham, who looked forward to Jesus' day. Indeed, even before Abraham was born, I am he. John 8.58 I note that the Greek, I am he, is not the same at all as the declaration of God's name in Exodus 3.14, where God says, I am the one who exists, ego imi o on. This title is referred to the Father, never to the Son. It designates the Father, not the Son, in Revelation 1 verse 8. The Greek, o on, I am the one who exists. The Greek here in John 8.58 is identical with the phrase in John 4.26 and 8.24, and is parallel to Jesus' grand statements, I am the good shepherd, John 10, 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. He is the only way to the Father, John 14, verse 6. The Messiah is the key to the creation of the world. His crucifixion, quote, happened in the counsels of God before the foundation of the world. He was the lamb, already slaughtered, quote, before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, verse 8, because, quote, in him, not by him, as mistranslated in a number of versions, everything was made, Colossians 1:16. All things were indeed through the Messiah and with him in view, Colossians 1:16. But this preposition through does not warrant a contradiction of the multiple texts which say that God created the heavens and earth unassisted. Isaiah 44:24. The Christians of all the ages were indeed in Christ, so to speak, before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 verse 4. But this does not mean that they were then conscious and alive. It was usual for Jews to speak of the world having been made for the sake of Israel. It was made also with Jesus, the Son of God, in mind. Jesus did indeed come down from heaven, as in John 6:38, but the Bible should be allowed to interpret its own sayings. James states that every good gift 
comes down from heaven and that true wisdom comes down from heaven. James 1 verse 17 and James 3 verse 15. Jesus also, so to speak, came down from heaven. That is, he is God's supreme gift to the world. John 3.16 We should observe that Jesus spoke of himself as bread which came down from heaven. No one thinks he was literally a loaf pre-existing. Moreover, that bread which came down is his flesh, Jesus said in John 6.51. It is the human Jesus who descends from heaven. But that is not what the Trinity teaches. It maintains that the eternal Son of God existed literally in heaven before his birth. The descent of Jesus from heaven is simply a Jewish way of expressing the idea that Jesus is the expression of God's ultimate wisdom and the Son is the final gift of the one God for the salvation of mankind. The Son as the purpose for God's creation. Paul's understanding of the destiny of the world is that all things are to be headed up in Jesus. He is the subject of the grand purpose planned long ago by the one God. Quote, this was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Ephesians 3.11. For Paul, Jesus is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24. He is what wisdom became. But wisdom itself is the wise thinking of the one God and that wisdom or word, lowercase w, in John 1.1 is eventually displayed in the procreated Son of God. Neither Paul nor John contradict the Hebrew Bible's promise that a son is to be born in Israel. Isaiah 9 verse 6, a prophet from the family of Israel like Moses. Deuteronomy 18 verses 15 to 19. Luke's and Matthew's accounts of the origin of the Son of God are designed to provide an impenetrable barrier to any speculation about another existence of the Son. John and Paul have unfortunately been used, or rather misused, and sometimes mistranslated to undermine, in fact, to contradict Matthew and Luke. It is to accuse John of a kind of recklessness if he is supposed to have presented Jesus as God himself. On the contrary, the Jesus of John told his accusers that he was not God, but the duly authorized, quote, Son of God, a supreme example of what God's agents may be. Had they not been called, quote, gods in the Old Testament period? How much more, then, is he, Jesus, as the final and principal agent of God, entitled to be called and recognized as Son of God, which is the equivalent of the Messiah throughout the New Testament. John chapter 10, verses 34 to 36. And Jesus in John makes as strong a statement of the Shema, 
as he does in Mark, when he defines the Christian God as the Father, who is, quote, the only one who is truly God, John 17, 3, and the only God in John 5, 44. The Constraints of Monotheism Edith Schaeffer, wife of the celebrated Francis Schaeffer, makes a simple and unarguable point in her book, Christianity is Jewish. It is a plain historical fact, which we should never forget, that the Christian faith has its roots in Judaism and in the Jewish people. With the possible exception of Luke, all the writers of the New Testament were Jews. Paul was a Jew. One may also say truthfully that, quote, the one mediator between God and men, the man, Messiah Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5, is still a Jew. Since he was born a Jew, that is still his identity. He is, of course, also the glorified head of the new race of human beings. All authority in heaven and earth has been vested in him by God his Father. Matthew 28, verse 18. The concept of Jesus' sacrifice for sin is a Hebrew one, and the whole concept of Jesus as Messiah, Son of God, is built on the Jewish definitions of those titles derived from the royal messianism of the Hebrew Bible, especially Psalm 2, which defines, quote, the Lord's Messiah, his anointed, that is, as the Son of God and King of God's coming kingdom. Psalm 2, verses 2, 6, and 7. He is to govern the world from Jerusalem. Psalm 2 is quoted some 18 times in the New Testament. And the precious oracle found in Psalm 110, verse 1, is referred to some 25 times by the New Testament writers. The gospel, as Jesus preached it, concerns the coming kingdom of God. That, too, is a thoroughly Jewish Old Testament concept and must not be wrenched from its Hebrew context and made to serve modern theological interests. The Church desperately needs reconnection to its Hebrew-Jewish roots. I note that this does not mean, however, a return to the Mosaic Judaism of the Old Covenant in terms of calendar and food laws and so on. Paul labored hard to proclaim the new freedom in Christ, which is the heart of the new covenant. Paul himself was, quote, within the Torah of Messiah, 1 Corinthians 9.21, but not under the law of Moses. To make his point, Paul spoke of Jesus, quote, who abolished the law of commandments in ordinances, Ephesians 2.15, to create one new, united, quote, Israel of God, and spiritual circumcision, Galatians 6, 16, Philippians 3, verse 3, in which all nations in Christ are one in Christ. The church is currently drawing not from those Jewish roots, but from a massive Greek system of theology which makes our Bible reading confused and ineffective. E.F. Scott, in a fine study of the kingdom of God, as the Christian gospel, 
complained as follows. The long and bitter controversy which led to the definition in metaphysical terms of the twofold nature of Christ, nothing seems to be more remote from the realities of the Christian faith than this dreary controversy. But for the Greek mind, everything was at stake in it. It is not surprising that modern writers have found a crucial proof that Christianity, in the course of the Gentile mission, as to say, beyond the New Testament period, had changed into a new religion. The church, says E.F. Scott, while still calling itself by the name of Jesus, had forgotten or refused to know what Jesus had actually taught. That's from E.F. Scott's book, The Kingdom of God in the New Testament. The church has acted treacherously towards its mother in Judaism. In the matter of defining God, it has in some sense become a prostitute by allowing its belief system at its heart to be infected by an alien doctrine of God. In addition to entering into a Constantinian concubinage, confusing the church and the world, the church has devised a view of God to which Jesus could not subscribe. God is one Lord, Jesus affirmed in Mark 12, 29. And this is not equivalent to God is three persons in one essence. That difference needs to be recognized. The result of this recognition can have staggering effects for the future of world religion. Christianity lost its identity. The proper method for searching out the identity of the God of the Bible is to start with the, quote, God texts. It is wrong to begin with the Son of God texts and simply read them to mean God the Son. One can produce isolated texts from John's Gospel which might imply indirectly that Jesus is God. But nothing should be concluded from those texts without first rooting one's thinking in the unitary monotheism of Jesus' own creed, restated in John also in chapter 17, verse 3. Here Jesus repeats the creed of Israel by referring to the Father as, quote, the only one who is truly God. Jesus is never identified with God, though he functions as God's agent and perfectly obedient Son. Calling Jesus God promotes belief in two who are God, and thus two gods. Jesus is always distinct from the one he calls God and Father, the one he calls the only God in John 5.44, or the only one who is truly God in John 17, 3. That famous statement of Jesus merely confirms the clear fact that he believed in God as a single person. John 17, 3 states a pure Unitarianism. Only the Father is God. No one else is the true God. The Father alone is God, John 5, 44. This is the language of Unitarianism using 
other, much less clear statements to contradict it pits the Bible against itself. The secondary statements must be harmonized with the primary, quote, God texts, which define him expressly and thus provide the Christian creed. Across the pages of the New Testament, the Father is the only one who is God. Jesus is never called the only God or the only true God. And none of the thousands of God texts, some 3,800 of them, ever mean a triune God. This argument ought surely to be decisive against a belief in the Trinity in the mind of the authors of the Bible. To make Jesus into a believer in himself as co-equally God, a member of the Trinity, is impossible on the evidence both of the New Testament and Jewish history. Oxford theologian A. E. Harvey, delivering the Bampton Lectures in 1980, pointed out that Jesus was constrained by the Unitarian theology of his Jewish heritage. Dr. Harvey says, I must now introduce one further instance of those historical constraints which, I have argued, give definition and content to the bare general statements which constitute the main part of our reliable information about Jesus. This is the constraint of that instinctive and passionate monotheism which lay at the heart of all Jewish religion and, at least in the eyes of pagans, constituted a great part of its identity. Quote, the Lord our God is one God. So begins the prayer, the Shema, which every Jew said and still says daily. Quote, thou shalt have no other gods besides me. So began the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which in the time of Jesus was recited every day in public worship. The belief that there's only one God and that he is Lord of all was fundamental to the one religion in antiquity which offered determined and uncompromising opposition to the tolerant polytheism of the pagan world. It was within a culture indelibly marked by this monotheism that Jesus lived and died and was proclaimed. It was within this constraint that Jesus had to convey his conviction of divine authorization and that his followers had to find means of expressing his unique status and significance. Within the Jewish community, the power of the monotheistic confession is seen perhaps most clearly in the criminal code. The most grievous offenses were those which in any way diminished the unique majesty and honor of God. Moreover, any intellectual or religious opinion which seemed to postulate a second celestial being independent of the one God was firmly anathematized. From the prophetic denunciation of idol worship to the strident polemics of Hellenistic Judaism against any manifestation of paganism, 
faith in the exclusive oneness of God is felt to be totally incompatible with the recognition of any other divine being. Jesus himself is recorded as having endorsed the standard Jewish confession of monotheism in Mark 12, 29. Justin Martyr cites Jesus as a teacher of traditional Jewish monotheism in the first apology of Justin Martyr, chapter 13. Jesus accepted the prohibition which this implied of any moral comparison between himself and God, Mark 10, verse 18. Moreover, in the fourth gospel, he is made to deny vigorously the accusation that he set himself up as a being equal to and independent of God. Most explicitly in John 10, verse 33, Jesus' reply makes the semantic point that there's a precedent in his own culture for using the word theos, God, for beings who are other than the one God. But the main burden of his reply, as throughout the gospel, is that far from being a second or rival God, is totally dependent on and united with his Father. That's from A. E. Harvey's book, Jesus and the Constraints of History. Jesus calls the one who alone is truly God his Father in John 17.3. Professor Harvey then says, quote, The New Testament writers similarly are insistent about the absolute oneness of God and show no tendency to describe Jesus in terms of divinity, that is, deity. The few apparent exceptions are either grammatically and textually uncertain, or have an explanation which brings them within the constraint of Jewish monotheism. It was not until the new religion had spread well beyond the confines of its parent Judaism that it became possible to break the constraint and to describe Jesus as divine. The first unambiguous instances are in Ignatius of Antioch, writing around 110 AD. It is significant that Jewish Christian churches continue to exist for at least a century, and they refused to take this step. The immediate followers of Jesus were strictly bound by the constraint of that monotheism which, as Jews, they instinctively professed, and in their attempts to declare who Jesus was, they stopped well short of describing him as, quote, divine. But at the same time, the importance they assigned to the title, quote, Son of God, suggests that when it was accorded to such a person as Jesus was remembered to have been, it was felt to imply the truth of those claims to divine authority which were characteristic of Jesus' whole style of action and utterance. Jesus had indeed shown that absolute obedience to God, had spoken to God with that intimate authority, and had acted with the unique authorization which belonged to God's representative and agent on earth, which would be characteristic 
of one who was, in the senses usually ascribed to sonship in antiquity, in very truth, son of God. End of quotation from A. E. Harvey's Jesus and the Constraints of History. I would add that the unique sonship marking Jesus out as the head and in a sense progenitor of a brand new race of human beings was vindicated by the reversal effected by God his Father, that's to say his resurrection from the dead. Harvey notes that, quote, there is no evidence whatever that Jesus spoke or acted as if he believed himself to be a God or divine. The attacks from the Jews are inferences which are, quote, countered by showing that far from usurping God's authority and power, Jesus was fully authorized to act as God's accredited agent. He assumed an authority to declare the will of God for men and to act in accordance with that will, such as had not been claimed by any previous figure in the religious history of the Jews. To describe himself as the Son of God would have been a way of claiming such unprecedented divine authorization at the same time as preserving intact that respect for the indivisible oneness of God, which was the instinctive possession of any religious Jew. The candid admission of Trinitarians and Church Fathers. History records some extraordinary admissions by churchmen that there is something radically amiss with the received doctrine of the Trinity. The Eastern theologian John of Damascus replied to the criticism that icons are unscriptural by admitting the fact and adding that you will not find in Scripture the Trinity or the one substance or the two natures of Christ either. But we know, said John of Damascus, that these doctrines are true. And so having acknowledged that icons, the Trinity, and the Incarnation are innovations, John goes on to urge his readers to hold fast to them as venerable traditions delivered to us by the fathers. If they were lost, says John of Damascus, the whole gospel would be threatened. That quotation is from Don Cupid's book, The Christ of Christendom, found in the myth of God incarnate. Theodore, the Studite, 759 to 826, adopted the argument of John of Damascus that the Trinity should be accepted just as tradition. Professor Don Cupid comments, quote, It brings out an old feature of Christianity, its mutability and the speed with which innovations came to be vested with religious solemnity to such an extent that anyone who questions them finds himself regarded as the dangerous innovator and heretic. That's from Don Cupid's The Christ of Christendom in the Myth of God Incarnate. One of the most influential architects of the Trinitarian doctrine, Gregory of Nyssa, admitted that the Trinity is in part a concession to paganism. The unitary monotheism of Jesus and Judaism he rejected 
as Jewish heresy. Readers may find shocking this summary of Gregory of Nyssa's opinion of what he disparagingly calls, quote, Jewish monotheism. I quote, the mystery of the faith avoids equally the absurdity of Jewish monotheism and that of heathen polytheism. That's from the Great Catechism, chapter 1. Another chief architect of Trinitarian dogma was Gregory of Nazianzus, who says, quote, Into what were you baptized? The Father? Good, but Jewish still. The Son? Good, but not yet perfect. The Holy Ghost? Very good. This is perfect. And what was the common name of these? Why, God, as from Oration 33, against the Arians. In the Great Catechism, Gregory of Nyssa wrote, And so one who severely studies the depth of the mystery of the Trinity receives secretly in his spirit, indeed a moderate amount of apprehension, of the doctrine of God's nature, yet he's unable to explain clearly in words the ineffable depth of this mystery. As, for instance, how the same thing is capable of being numbered and yet rejects numeration, how it is observed with distinctions yet is apprehended as a monad, how it is separate as to personality yet is not divided as to subject matter. For in personality, the spirit is one thing, the word another, and yet again, that from which the word and spirit is another. But when you have gained the conception of what the distinction is in these, the oneness again of the nature admits not division, so that the supremacy of the one first cause is not split, and cut up into differing godships, neither does the statement of the Trinity harmonize with the Jewish dogma. But the truth passes in the mean between these two conceptions, destroying each heresy and yet accepting what is needful for it from each. The Jewish dogma, says Gregory of Nyssa, is destroyed by the acceptance of the word and by the belief in the spirit, while the polytheistic error of the Greek school is made to vanish by the unity of the nature, abrogating this imagination of plurality. While yet again of the Jewish conception, let the unity of the nature stand and of the Hellenistic only the distinction as to persons the remedy against a profane view being thus applied, as required on either side. For it is as if the number of the triad were a remedy in the case of those who are in error as to the one, and the assertion of the unity for those whose beliefs are dispersed among a number of divinities. Those who worked out the dogma of the Trinity apparently felt unembarrassed to speak of the destruction of what they called the Jewish dogma. 
But had not Jesus quoted that very Jewish dogma? Does not this hallowed church father condemn Jesus as one of those, quote, who are in error as to the one? The root of the church father's mistaken notion is that, quote, we must be careful not to allow this term begotten to suggest to us any analogy with created things. The word beget, however, must be silenced, says this church father, by emptying it of its actual meaning. But this is to deny God's activity in history, to keep him out of his own creation. The whole method is ahistorical and Gnostic. Just as traditional Christianity has tended to describe the Christian future wrongly as beyond time and space, instead of connecting it with the restoration of the earth in a new age of history on earth, so the fathers, so-called, dehistoricized the promise of the birth of the Messiah. They moved it back into invisible prehistory and obscured it. Henry Alford, the commentator, admits that the fathers had to, quote, assign a fitting sense to the word today in Psalm 2, verse 7. That's from Henry Alford's Greek Testament commentary. But that so-called fitting sense was, in fact, the dissolving of the meaning of plain words and the rejection of prophetic scripture in the interests of a mistaken view of the Son of David. The whole Trinitarian project needs to be re-examined in the light of the biblical view of God's promises in history and within the human biological chain. Muslims are quite wrong to think of crude sexual begetting, but Christians undermine the historical biological miracle by which the Father procreated and thus gave existence to his unique son. No wonder then that Leonard Hodgson, Regis Professor of Divinity at Oxford, lecturing on the Trinity in 1943, admitted that Unitarianism had a far firmer biblical basis. Speaking as a Trinitarian, Hodgson said, that in the debates in the 17th and 18th centuries, quote, the Unitarians, as well as their opponents, accepted the Bible as containing revelation given in the form of propositions. The impression, Dr. Hodgson said, which they leave on my mind, is that on the basis of argument, which both sides held in common, the Unitarians had the better case. That's from Leonard Hodgson's The Doctrine of the Trinity. Professor Morris Wiles of Cambridge noted in 1973 that, quote, the Reformers, for all their recasting of the tradition and insistence on the New Testament as their sole authority, remained fully traditionalist in Christological doctrine. He then reaffirms the words of Leonard Hodgson, which we've just quoted. Unitarians had the Bible on their side, while the Christological doctrine of the official church, quote, has never in practice been derived simply 
by way of logical inference from the statements of Scripture. Calling for a large-scale re-examination of the Church's view of God and Jesus is the provocative conclusion of Morris Wiles. Quote, the Church has not usually in practice whatever it may have claimed to be doing in theory based its Christology exclusively on the witness of the New Testament. That's from Morris Wilde's book, The Remaking of Christian Doctrine. The Reformers, in fact, did not fully examine the creeds which they inherited in the light of the Hebrew background of Jesus and the Apostles. Such historical sleuthing was left to later generations, and the results of close examination reveal a large gap between Jesus and the later doctrine of God. Luther's exaggerated concern with Romans and his comparative neglect of the synoptic Gospels was bound to result in an unbalanced view of the faith. When Jesus is not allowed to be the controlling factor in New Testament theology, we are in trouble. And Jesus makes that point over and over again, as do the apostles. He makes it repeatedly and emphatically in the Gospel of John. Could anything be more shockingly clear than Peter's comment in Acts 3, verse 23? Quote, Everyone who does not listen to that prophet, the Messiah, will be cut off from the people. Reflecting John's words about Jesus in John 3:36, Whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. The Bible Dictionary Jesus' view of himself, of God and the Spirit as the operational presence and power of God, not a third person, are made clear in the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels. The sphere of the revelation of Jesus was limited to the fatherhood of God and all his other references to the divine being are more or less incidental. They involve conceptions which he shared with Old Testament prophets. Jesus never sought to prove the existence or the personality of God. These were invariably assumed. To Jesus, as to his people through many centuries, God was one. Jesus did not modify this ancient belief. To the scribe who asked which commandment was greatest, Jesus quoted the familiar confession from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and following, which begins with the words, Jehovah our God is one Jehovah, Mark 12, 29. And the author of the fourth gospel represents Jesus as addressing these words of prayer to the Father, quote, this is life eternal, that they should know you, the only true God, John 17, 3. The language of Jesus, this comment from the Dictionary of Christ in the Gospels continues, this language of Jesus, Jesus' sayings on the Spirit, does not appear to suggest a different view of the Spirit from that of the old prophets. It's obvious that we cannot draw any personal distinction between this spirit and God. 
we conclude this paragraph with the statement that there's nothing in the narrative of the genuine teaching of Jesus which suggests a modification of the old prophetic conception of pure monotheism. On what authority, we may well ask, has the church broken trust with Jesus' own central belief about God? Other distinguished biblical authorities are just as candid. The Hastings Dictionary of the Bible, in its long article on God, says, The revelation God gives of himself is a revelation of himself as he is in truth, though it may be impossible to reveal himself fully to men. The Old Testament conception of God is that of a person with ethical attributes. It nowhere speculates on his physical essence. God is nowhere called spirit in the Old Testament. Like men, he has a spirit, but spirit never denotes substance, but always connotes energy and power, especially life-giving power. From the earliest period when God is spoken of, he's regarded as a person. The word Yahweh is a personal name. He is self-conscious and swears, quote, by his holiness, Amos 4, verse 2. That is, by his Godhead, Genesis 22, verse 16. God is fully personal from the first, while his moral being becomes clearer and more elevated, or at least receives fuller expression. God's walking in the garden, Genesis 3, verse 8, and other such passages are a testimony to the vividness with which God's personality was conceived from a dictionary of Christ and the Gospels. This fine statement seems so much more natural to the text of the Bible than that of some modern Trinitarians such as James White, who tries to persuade us that the biblical God is not a person but a being, three persons in one what. White insists that what person means when we speak of the three members of the Trinity is quite different than when we speak of creatures such as ourselves. The one what is the being of God. Very confusingly, however, some pages later, White is defining the one being as the eternal God who, singular, created everything. For White, the word God can refer to the Father, to the Son, and to the Spirit, or to all three persons at once. So he says in his book, The Forgotten Trinity, pages 27, 132, and 71, but White gives no example of such a use of the word God in Scripture.